start our time of the sermon here. Our first scripture reading comes from Isaiah 53. Who has believed what they have heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and is one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own ways, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of, of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and yet there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide with him, uh, him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoils with the strong. Because he has poured out his soul to death, it was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and makes transgression for the transgressors. And uh, I'm calling a little audible here. I'm adding another passage from Matthew. So a New Testament reading from Matthew chapter 16. From the time that Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and on the third day raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. And our sermon text today is from Lamentations chapter 3. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy though I call and cry for help. He shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stone. He has made my path crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrows. He drove into my kidneys the arrow of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all the people, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace 
I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my afflictions and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheeks to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he causes grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict willingly or grieve the children of men. To crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. Who has spoken? And it come to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High, the good and the bad one? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us scum and garbage among the people. All our enemies open their mouth against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us. Devastation and destruction. My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes call me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. I have been hunted like a bird by those who were enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said, I am lost. I called on your name, O Lord. From the depths of the pit, you heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. You have seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. You have heard their taunts, O Lord, all their plots against me. The lips and thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Behold, they're sitting and they're rising. I am the object of their taunts. You will repay them, O Lord, according to the works of your hand. You will give them dullness of hearts. Your curse will be upon them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. So today marks the uh, first Sunday of Lent, according to the liturgical calendar. And if you've been with us for some time at Resurrection Church, you may remember that about two years ago, exactly two years ago, I uh, started a series uh, during Lent uh, that I entitled Lament for Lent, uh, in which we were examining the book of Lamentations. And about halfway through the series, after I finished the first two chapters, the world as we know it changed very quickly as we were afflicted by the coronavirus. Uh, so now as we approach another season of Lent, what I would like to do is pick back up on that series as we take a pause from the book of Joshua. So there's an old proverb that says, 
may you live in interesting times. And of course, the problem with that, or the, the joke of that proverb is it's meant to be a curse. We are living in interesting times. And the world looks to be getting more dangerous as Russia invades Ukraine. Land wars in Europe never seem like they end well. Tragedy has affected our world in ways that we are only now beginning to comprehend. So I think it is appropriate and helpful during this time as we work toward Easter Sunday and the great joy of resurrection to remember that the victory came through the cross. Therefore, the time of Lent is the perfect time to uh, return to the subject of lament. I believe that lament is a uh, neglected practice that the church needs to recover. Lament is a time of somber reflection on the brokenness of the world that all too many people are experiencing. Uh, Many of us have probably read the news and read about the uh, plight of the refugees uh, in uh, Ukraine right now. All too many people are experiencing the brokenness of this world. It is actually estimated that one-third of the Psalms are lament songs. And since, of course, the Psalms were used in worship, lament was very much a part of the ancient Jewish liturgy. And this is one of the things that I am trying to recover by focusing our attention It's not as exciting. It's not the best uh, necessarily for cheering up a crowd, uh, as you probably heard as we read this uh, chapter. But I do think it's something important. So it's been two years, so I need to remind you of some of the points I made about this book of Lamentations so that we can study this chapter a little bit better. Uh, So, of course, the book of Lamentations was written shortly after the greatest tragedy in Israel's history at that point, the conquest and sacking of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. From that point on, Israel would cease to exist as an independent political entity. Except for a brief time period, Israel would be dominated by foreign and at most of the times hostile imperial powers. And it's almost impossible to overstate the psychic shock that this loss of the city of Jerusalem, and particularly uh, along with that, the temple in Jerusalem inflicted on the survivors. Their entire world was overturned. And this naturally led them to question everything, and particularly their relationship with God. Were they still God's people? Was there a God? The book of Lamentations is an attempt to wrestle with these deep and disturbing uh, questions raised in the aftermath of the destruction of everything that held their world together. And therefore, the book of Lamentations, it's not a book of theology. It's not a book about answers. It's a book about wrestling. It's grappling. It's emotional. That's why it has to be written in poetry because uh, mere uh, prose just cannot capture the depth and intensity of what these people are going through. And so as we read this, and, and we almost recoil, and uh, it, it's difficult to work through, we have to understand that this was, this, that's exactly what this book is about. Now, one of the interesting things about Lamentations is it's actually composed of multiple verse, of voices. And these voices are actually in conversation with each other. They're in dialogue. Uh, chapter 1 is dominated by a woman, who calls herself Daughter Zion. And she expresses the grief and the pain after the sacking of Jerusalem. 
uh, daughter Zion represents the anguish of Jerusalem as a whole in the wake of this uh, city's destruction by the Babylonian army. And one of the points I made was that what this lament is doing is it's seeking to incorporate all those who are sad and suffering. So it's to understand that, that, that God sees these people, that this is an important part of the human experience, that this is something we don't neglect and overlook. Uh, crying, hurting, grieving, and even anger toward God are all affirmed as very much a part of the faith experience. Uh, we do seem to want to try to write that out of our, of our worship. But for the Jews and for the Psalms, we see it's very much a part of theirs. Many, like Daughter Zion, have experienced the tragic loss of seeing their whole world ripped apart. Uh, the people in the Ukraine right now, uh, very much so. For these, life is not a happy story. And it's important, I think, that we as the church make room for these people. Chapter 2 introduced a new figure that uh, we we call the narrator. Uh, He interacts and he's in dialogue with daughter Zion. And he actually changes. The really cool thing about that chapter is he actually changes in response to the suffering he observes. At the beginning of that chapter, he looks at daughter Zion kind of as an objective observer from a distance. And he concludes that uh, because of her sin, because of what she's done, done wrong, she deserves her punishment. Uh, she's brought it on herself. However, as the chapter goes on, the narrator is moved and his view changes. He no longer judges daughter Zion, but ends up defending her and has compassion for her. So uh, part of lament then is seeing the hurt and pain of those around us and developing empathy leading to mercy and grace. Lament helps us to identify uh, injustice and to speak out against it using the prophetic voice that has been given to the church. Now this week, as we go to chapter 3, we're going to look at another aspect of of, of lament. And for us as the the church, as Christ's church, this is probably the most significant aspect of of lament. Because as we will see, it's going to point directly to Christ and the cross. Now, Before we get into chapter 3, I want to remind you of a few important keys to understanding the book of Lamentations. First, as I mentioned in the introduction, one of the key characteristics is that it's composed of multiple voices. And each voice has its own viewpoint, which makes this like a really complex work. Because we're not given just one side of the story. And of course, as we know, that's life. There's more than one side of the story. And if we want to truly understand suffering and griefs, we've got to see it from all the different uh, uh, standpoints. In the first two chapters, we have the narrator and daughter Zion. In this chapter, a new voice is introduced. Now, uh, this is also something I find really interesting. And, uh, you know, you have to remember that this is a different time uh, back then and people thought different ways. But one of the things that's neat about uh, Lamentations is the, the different chapters are different poems and they're organized as acrostics, okay? So, so each, uh, each verse begins with a consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, chapters one and two are composed of 22 verses and each of the three line verses begins with a consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But in chapter three, this chapter that we read about, that pattern is actually intensified. Chapter three uh, is composed of uh, 22 lines, but now 
each line begins with a consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet rather than just each verse. So, for example, if you look at verse 1, 2, and 3 in Hebrew, they all begin with the letter Aleph. If you look at 4, 5, and 6, it begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Bet. And then 7, 8, and 9, Gimel, and so on. Now, it's a little confusing because our Bibles and the way they number the verses, blah, blah, blah. But the point here is that there is this heightened intensity in the acrostic, the acrostic pattern. Now, if you combine that by the fact that this is central, this is in the center of the book. So, you know, we usually save the main point for last. You know, we're like, okay, you know, if we're doing uh, writing an essay or something like that, we usually are like, okay, point one, two, and like three is the important one we want you to pay attention to. We save that one, right? Well, in Hebrew, they don't like to do it that way. They like to put the main point in the middle, the center. And so chapter three is the theological center. This is the main point of the book of Lamentations. So let's turn to chapter three and let's meet this new voice that's being introduced in verse one. I am the man who has seen infliction under the rod of his wrath. Now, the word for man used here is not the ordinary word for man. In Hebrew, the word used here is actually gibber. And its root means strong, okay? Now, we find this root gibber in, for example, the name Gabriel. <laughs> yeah. Strong, all right? So the name Gabriel means God is strong. So, so when we're talking about Gibber, we're not just talking about any man. We're talking about a strong man, like a warrior, a valiant man. And so when we read the stories of David, for example, the stories of King David in the Old Testament, the, 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 the people that surround him, the mighty men, are described using this term Gibber. And so it's likely that the voice in chapter 3 was someone in the army charged with defending Jerusalem. So I'm going to refer uh, to the voice in chapter 3 as a soldier, because I think a soldier is the best modern day analogy to what we would think of as a gibber. So returning to, to verse 1, we read that this soldier has experienced affliction under God's wrath. Like daughter Zion in chapter 1, the soldier speaks from personal experience of this tragic fall of Jerusalem. Like daughter Zion, his own experience of affliction mirrors his community's suffering. He is the representative of the whole community of Jerusalem, and he's given voice in this poem. Daughter Zion had experienced a reversal of her, her position. She was great among the nations. She is described as a princess, but the calamity has overturned her status. She is no longer who she thought she was. In the same way, this soldier uh, is also uh, experiences this uh, radical alteration of his position. He is a soldier, and his job is to protect Jerusalem. But here he has failed. And it's not just physical suffering he's experiencing. It's, he's, he's lost his identity. What kind of a soldier who is designed to protect uh, fails to do so? And you notice the repetition uh, throughout this poem. Uh, there's this, uh, you, you hear it uh, when, I was, when I was reading it, you heard it. Uh, there's all these first person pronouns. He has driven and brought me into darkness. Surely against me he turns his hand. He has besieged me. 
the soldier has become an object who is acted on. He doesn't do stuff. Stuff is done to him. He has lost his agency. This is not the position you want to be in as a soldier. And like daughter Zion, he is under no illusion as to what the source of the tragedy is. The he that is afflicting him is clearly God. And this is central to the thought of Lamentations. We see daughter Zion make the same point. And don't think that this is so obvious. You know, we're in church, so we're used to thinking like God is the answer to everything. Uh, But remember, it was King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians who laid siege and sacked Jerusalem. It would be real easy to blame them for the suffering. However, so strong were these people's belief in the authority and power of God that even if God was not the direct cause, they believed God ordained the actions of the Babylonians. And that is deeply unsettling. See, we want to skip ahead and we want like to solve this problem and to just be like, well, actually what God is doing here is like the greater good. That is not any part of the theology of Lamentations. Uh, If we look, the first major section of the chapter ends in verse 18 with the soldier declaring, my strength and my hope are lost before the Lord. Like daughter Zion, the soldier seems crushed by the weight of this tragedy. Yet, what's remarkable about this lament and, 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 and what, 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 is, what is crazy here and what we're supposed to get is it doesn't end there. It would be so easy just to end there with his spirit just totally crushed. But against all evidence to the contrary, the soldier finds hope. And there's a change that comes here. And this change comes precisely when the uh, soldier explicitly uses the name of God. So remember in your Bibles, when you see Lord in small caps, that's actually Yahweh. That's like the real name of God. That's like the personal name of God. So, so, so in Hebrew, God is uh, a lot of times called El or Elohim. And that's kind of like this impersonal, more this force. But when you want to talk about the, the, the real personal God, the God who has a personality, who has a relationship with, you know, the I and the thou, uh, uh, we think of Yahweh. And so the, for the first time here, the soldier uses the name of Yahweh. And up until this point, uh, that's only been implied. It's just been like he was the one inflicted me, but now we have Yahweh being used to explicitly. And so in verse 20, we find the soldier looking back at his life. And there the soldier comes to a realization, a revelation, an epiphany that changes everything. He contemplates the character of God. God's a real person. He's not just a force. And when he thinks about the character of God, he realizes that grace, love, and mercy of God, the grace, love, and mercy of God outweigh everything, including his justice. If the suffering of daughter Zion can move the narrator, then certainly the suffering of God's people that he had chosen and nourished and raised and who had been given a purpose to bless his creation can move God as well. And the very character of God then the narrator or the soldier finds hope. It is the only place hope can be found. And so it's to this that the soldier returns. The character of God is expressed beautifully in chapter, in verse 22. In fact, this is really, uh, so so if if chapter three is the theological center of revelations, uh, of lamentations, 
chapter or verse 22 is the theological center of the book uh, of this chapter. So because of the uh, importance of these verses, I'm going to give a very literal translation. And so it might differ slightly from what is in your Bible. The loving kindness of Yahweh surely has not ended. Surely not exhausted are his mercies. Now, there's a lot to unpack in this verse. And one of the reasons that I translated this passage more literally is so you can hear that this verse is an example of a really important rhetorical device called a... Do we have a rhetoric professor here? It's a chiasm. It's a chiasm. I didn't give you enough time. I didn't give you enough time to map it out. So a chiasm repeats similar ideas in an A, B, B, A pattern. Uh... So we have two similar attributes of, of, of Yahweh, his loving kindness and his mercy. And bracketing those two statements are implications of those characteristics. The loving kindness and mercy of Yahweh means that they cannot end and they cannot be exhausted. By using a chiasm here, the soldier is highlighting the importance of this thought. And it's this epiphany, this re- realization, this revelation that leads to the great statement of faith in verse 23. God's loving kindness and mercy is renewed every morning. So great is his faithfulness. It's the only verse you know from Lamentations. (laughs) Because it's like the only one that is almost hopeful. Now, here's the thing we need to think about. And here's why it makes such a great hymn and why we sung it today. The first thing to note here is the soldier's circumstances have not changed at all. At no point has his world gotten any better. This praise of the character of Yahweh and newfound hope results solely in his view of God. And that view comes from just contemplating God's character. And second, this confession contains two key Hebrew words which are of great importance. So the, the, the word for loving kindness here is our favorite Hebrew word. Anybody want to take a guess? A thousand resurrection church points for what word here for uh, loving kindness, Hebrew? That's it. Thousand resurrection points. All right. Don't know what those are good for. Yeah. But if you learn only one Hebrew word in your lifetime, this should be the one you learn. Hesed is a key attribute of God. It's repeated throughout the Old Testament. And so when the Israelites thought about God and who God is, one of the major ideas that they thought about was this word hesed. Now, I think it's important that we probably agree that hesed is a characteristic of God. We are are more likely to think about things like omnipotence and omnipresence and omniscience. When we think of God, that's usually the categories we think about. But those kind of thoughts are more at home in like Greek philosophy, the Greek metaphysical philosophical world than they are in Hebrew thought. For the Hebrews, hesed was like the key attribute of God. And the key to understanding hesed is that it can't be translated directly into English. It encompasses several concepts. It actually has like multiple meanings. It's got a wide semantic field, as they say in the business. And so you can't reduce it to a single English word. Um, Loving kindness is a good translation. Okay, that's totally fine. Steadfast love is another word you'll see often. 
But uh, one, of the, one of the things is you have to understand uh, that this word originates, this word hesed originates in, uh, in the concept of an obligation that is owed to someone in your clan or, or, or you know, a, as a member of this clan, you have this sense of fierce loyalty uh, to do what you say you're going to do. It's like a debt owed. It's an obligation. And that's the key to understanding hesed. As, as, as is the fact that uh, this loyalty takes place in an established relationship. So that's the key. Hesed isn't just like in general, like abstract loving kindness. It's loving kindness. It's obligation. It's loyalty because of a relationship. And of course, uh, you know, what, what's, the, what's the basis for the relationship? The I and the thou uh, in, in the Old Testament? It's the covenant, you know. So we, we you know, it all ties together. Uh, we'll talk about the covenant more. But... The key here is that it's like this extreme sense of loyalty and duty because of a relationship. And for, that, for the ancient Israelites, that was the covenant that was established at Mount Sinai after he freed them from the Egyptians. Now, the second word here is mercy. And in Hebrew, that word is rakam. And the cool thing is that rakam, this is cool. Let me tell you where this word comes from. Like if you're all, and yeah, this will be great for all your uh, next time you get into uh, some kind of gender debate about God. Uh, the word rakam is used for a woman's womb. It's where her baby grows and is nourished. So in addition to this idea of mercy, right? So, so mercy is, of course, rakam. You can see like, like, you know, the helpless baby being like, like nourished, right? Uh, there's this, this mothering image involved. Okay, so that, that's kind of the idea here behind Rockham. Now, furthermore, this description of God as being uh, Hesed and Rockham, okay, or loving kindness and mercy as, as we translated it, this is not new to Lamentations 3, okay? This description of God's character is actually taken out of a very key chapter in Exodus, Exodus 32. So that was right after the golden calf incident. You remember, like, God was like, hey, here's 10 things you should know. And one of them was, don't make images of other gods. And so what do they do? They make the golden calf and they say, this is God. And God gets pretty upset because he just told him not to do that. And Moses has to plead with God to spare Israel. And, he, and, and Moses' argument is, look, you've made a covenant with these people. And, and I know your character, it's good. And, and Moses says, I want to see you. I want to experience who you are. And so uh, there's this like, you know, crazy chapter in which God reveals himself. He allows Moses to see his glory. And these are the words that Moses exclaimed, right? That God is loving kind and he's merciful. When, when Moses fully experiences God's glory, when he sees his character, what he comes away from it, is that God is, uh, is Hesed and Rakam. Those were the two things. So, so this, this is why this is verse is so critical in chapter three. And in fact, it brings about a whole change in the direction of this poem. You gotta read this chapter like a poem. It helps to look at like poetry. If you try to sit here and like uh, make it into some kind of theological, like, uh, you know, systematic theology, it won't work. You're much better feeling and experiencing this. And the big issue of Lamentations, of course, is this question of the relationship between God and Israel. 
Is there a relationship now that, 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 that Jerusalem's destroyed? And what the soldier's reflection leads him to after this point is to realize that this relationship is still intact. God will remain loyal to his people because that's who he is. That's his very character. Central to his very being is mercy and to devotion to those who he has bonded himself to. When we use the word faithful and talk about the faithfulness of God, this is what we are talking about. God might be angry, but it cannot last forever. He does not afflict from the heart. And it's this change in attitude for the soldier that changes everything. Remember, the conditions haven't changed here. Now, the lament shifts from concerns about his own suffering, okay, what's been done to him, to the community. He starts thinking about other people and how they've suffered. And this leads uh, him to share. This leads to what we would call, uh, this leads to a different kind of lament. It's not his lament, now it's a communal lament. He urges the people who he has suffered alongside to find the hope he has found, reminding them of the character of God. So in verses 1 through 18, I made, I made the point that the soldier sees himself in a, as an object that God has acted on. Now, if we look at verses 52 and 55, we see a shift. What does it say? They haven't stared me. They have cut my life in a pit. The soldier now views that it's not God that's against him, but rather his enemies. And this gives the soldier some confidence because the soldier is certain that God will not let such an offense to his people go unpunished. The soldier sees his own life and his own past experience with God as a basis for the future. His life is not at an end. That's why the lament goes on. There's a future. Listen to verse 57 and 58. You drew close on that day I called you. You said, do not fear. You pleaded, oh, my master, my cause. You redeemed my life. The soldier has come to realize that his enemies are God's enemies and that God will fight for him. And in fact, the word for redeemed in verse 58 is goel, which means that God is acting under his obligations as a goel, which was a kinsman redeemer. In ancient Israel, it was the responsibility of the Goel to buy anyone in the clan who had fallen into slavery, regardless of the circumstance, even if they were a jerk, even if they wasted all their money. You know, like, here's where the story of the prodigal son comes from, right? God is no longer doling out blind, uncaring injustice like he's some kind of cosmic Javert from Les Miserables. Just as the narrator has been moved to pity by daughter Zion, God has been moved by the plight of the soldier. And since the soldier's suffering is also the suffering of the people, there is hope for everyone, for all. Now we read in verses 59 through 66, that rather than viewing God acting on the soldier, his enemies acting against the soldier, the soldier now has hope that God will act against his enemies. Verse 59, You have seen all their vindictiveness, all their schemes against me. In verse 64, pay them back their deserts, O Lord, according to their own acts. Now, let's start to put this together, okay? Because that's a lot. But the take-home message here is that we have seen a total shift in the thought of the soldier as he remembers God's character and instances of faithfulness in the past. And what this does is it leads the soldier to concern for his community. 
He's thinking about other people now. He was just thinking about himself and how he's been acted on. Now, because of the shift, he's thinking about his community. And he hopes and he finds hope for a future because God's relationship with his people cannot be broken. And God cannot act against his character, which is Hesed and Rakam. A lament that begins with God's attacking and no longer appearing to hear the suffering of the soldier ends with God hearing the soldier's voice. Now, however great this message is, there's so much more to this poem than even that. You see, what we read here is a revolutionary idea that will lead eventually to no less than Christ and the cross itself. And this poem, both the character's daughter Zion and the soldier individually personify and embody their entire community. In Lamentations, these individuals act as representatives. And it's this idea that, that someone else, the prophet Isaiah, is going to pick back up and develop more f- fully. As we've noted, and as, it, 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 as you read through Lamentations, it's not a hopeful book. If you're waiting for like the cool end where it's like, hey, everything's going to be great. It doesn't happen in Lamentation. It's a dark and depressing book. And even though uh, we read a few verses of hope here and there in chapter 3, this book uh, is going to actually, in the next two chapters, spoiler alert, it's going to get sad again. However, the key is that Lamentations is just one book. It's not the last word. And one of the, the cool things that biblical scholars have noticed is that the, there's this pivotal section of Isaiah. Okay, so Isaiah is kind of divided up into different sections. And there's this one, one uh, part of Isaiah. It's usually the, the chapters that like, we actually hear quoted from, 40 through 55. Okay? And what the chapters 40 through 55 in Isaiah, which is like this really key chunk of Isaiah, do, is they take this language from Lamentations. So all this Lamentations language is taken up in Isaiah. So if you heard that passage I read from Isaiah, you'll probably have heard some of the same words in Lamentations chapter 3, okay? Now, uh, for instance, uh, Lamentations begins with daughter Zion begging for someone to comfort her. And uh, Isaiah 40 begins with comfort, comfort my people. And there's actually like a ton of these parallels. And so the key here is Isaiah 40 through 55 is a direct response to Lamentations. And if you're a Bible nerd, you know that within this section are four poems that are called the servant songs. And each of these songs uh, called the servant songs uh, has this servant that embodies the suffering of pain of Israel's exile. But it is through their suffering and pain that the servant redeems and ultimately frees Israel. And later Jewish thinkers would identify this servant that are in these songs, these four songs, as the Messiah. And that's where Lamentations becomes important. Because the suffering and pain of daughter Zion and the soldier needs to be answered. Lamentations is an affirmation of the reality of pain in this world. And that's why we shouldn't neglect lament. That's why we need it to be a part of our worship, because we can't skip over that. Lamentations is giving voice and allowing these voices of pain and suffering to be heard. Lamentations is bearing witness to the stark reality of a broken world and ensuring that it is on record and it's not forgotten. It's a remarkable work and embodies nothing less than the tears of the whole world and it demands that they are answered. And 
It is to this cry that Christ is given as that answer. And like the soldier, Christ says, I am the man who has seen affliction. Because the questions that Lamentations asked and leave us with, and it's the questions we ask, the questions the whole world asks and wants an answer, it's the question of the very center of theology itself. And it's the very question that Christ asked on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a Jewish writer. His name is Elie Wiesel. He tells an incredible story in his book, Night. So Night is a book, uh, it's an autobiographical account of Wiesel's experience in the concentration camp as a teenager. And one of the stories he tells, it's absolutely haunting, is uh, when he witnesses three people being hanged on the gallows by the SS. One of the three was a young boy. He had been caught collaborating against the Nazis. And the story goes that he tells is that the older men died very quickly, but the young boy dies agonizingly slow. It takes almost 30 minutes for the boy to die. Wiesel remembers a man near him watching the scene. And the man asks the question that we should all be asking at this time. That if we are honest with himself, we all ask, where is God? It's a question of limitations, right? And Wiesel's response to that question is this. I heard a voice within me answer him. Where is he? Here he is. He is hanging on the gallows. Now that is a very Jewish understanding of God. And it comes from places like Lamentations and Isaiah. And I think this is a view of God that we have lost to a degree because we've adopted too much of the Greek philosophical trans- tradition that gravitates toward this detached, transcendent God. But the God of the Bible is very far from that. The God of the Bible is not a God of omnipotence and omnipresence, though that's there, you know, not taking away from that. But the God of the Bible is a God of Hesed and Rakam. And the God of the Bible experiences the suffering of his people. It's what the message of the prophets is over and over again. That God is hurt or he's angry and he longs to heal and save his people. The God of the Bible is anything but the dispassionate, apathetic God of philosophy. So if we look at, for example, if we look at our passage from Matthew, this passage that we read from Matthew occurs right after Peter confesses Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. He got that right. Jesus confirms his confession, but then Jesus goes on to explain what it means to be the Messiah. What does it mean to be Jesus? What does it mean to act as God in the world? It means that as God's representative to his people, he must suffer and die. That's the point that totally blows Peter's mind. He's totally confused. And it's because he's forgotten Lamentations. And he's forgotten Isaiah chapter 53. But if Jesus is God's chosen agent, then Jesus is supposed to fix the problems of the world. And then he's supposed to reign in peace. That's what Peter's trying to do. And so Peter tries to contradict Jesus, but Jesus cannot have it. He refuses to let him have it. Jesus says, Peter has become a hindrance to the plan. And he calls him Satan. It's pretty strong. Because Peter is not setting his mind on the things of God. And what Peter's forgotten 
is that fixing the problems means remembering the victims and the suffering and the grief of this world and confronting the darkest moments, like the one in the story I just read from uh, Weasel. Those have to be answered. Those have to be redeemed too. Peter has forgotten lament. That's why we need to, to, to pay attention to these passages. And God's answer to his people, God's answer to the victims of tragedy and suffering is to send his son into the world, to fully reveal himself to the world in the persons of Jesus, to show what Hesed and Rakam look like. And it's this Jesus in which Yahweh is fully known. It is the Jesus in which the entire story of Israel, including Lamentations and Isaiah, has been pointing forward to. And the most important thing that God wants to reveal about himself in the world is what? The cross. In the Gospels, everything points to and goes through the cross. And when we want to know what God is like, we point to the cross. Because that's where God is. He's hanging there on the cross. In the beginning was the word, but where is it finished? On the cross. On the cross, we see a God who fully experiences all the suffering and pain of his people. At the crucifixion, we see a God who experiences himself the loss of his beloved son. And it is at the cross that God makes himself fully known. That is the main thing that God wants you to understand about him. And so that is the answer to God's, or God's answer to the tears of the world. It's not a syllogism. It's not a philosophy. It's not an explanation. It's not a protest. It's not resignation. The answer is, God, is a God who suffers as deeply as we do because God is love.